Because some scholars are now thinking that only is a better word there. Not truly is he my rock in salvation, but only he is my rock and my salvation. And I love this declaration because pain demands all of our focus. Pain beckons us to keep our eyes down on the lower story of our circumstance, of getting completely wrapped up in whatever is going on around us. But if we live out this declaration that truly or only he is my salvation, not God, would you come down, you come down into my circumstance and save it. No, God, I am going to lift my head to who you are. And instead of wallowing in my circumstance, instead of wallowing in my hurt, I am going to be reminded once again of your character, of who you are. I'm going to lift my head to the greater story because this life isn't about me. And when I lift my head up, I get to see how God is at play, interweaving all of our stories working even the most dire and hurtful of situations to his glory and to the greater good that only he's aware of. Truly, he is my salvation. In John 16, Jesus is emotionally and spiritually preparing the disciples for his death. They just don't know it uh, because we get to see the end of the story. And they are just walking through this wonder and mystery of Jesus' weird riddles of speech. So in John 16, he's talking to the disciples, and they don't know what he's actually saying, but he is telling them about what's going to come when he's put to death. And when he rises again in the life that they're going to walk out, and he says these words in John 16, 33, John 16, 33, I have told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Friends, the hurt is inevitable. The hurt is inevitable, but it doesn't have to consume us. It doesn't have to demand all of our perspective because Jesus is victorious. He has overcome. But I have a hard truth for some people. Are you ready? Jesus didn't say, but take heart, I've overcome your trouble. He didn't. He didn't say, but take heart, I'm going to come in and I'm going to calm every storm you're in. He didn't. He said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Because what Jesus knew, and we need to be reminded in this statement that God is our salvation, is that this world is not all there is. And this world is momentary. This world is a vapor. And just because our circumstance doesn't get solved in this world doesn't mean that God's not victorious. It doesn't mean he's not salvation. It doesn't mean we are hopeless. No, because this world is going to end. But there is a world coming. There's an eternal life coming. And there's freedom there. And there's peace there. 
And Jesus was preparing the disciples emotionally and spiritually to say, just wait. Just wait. Because what I'm going to do is the greater battle. It's the greater war that I'm going to be the savior of. I am going to save your soul. And when we lift our eyes from the lower story to the greater, we get the perspective once again that, yes, does God care about what happens in my today? Absolutely, he does. But the greater battle is won. And when we invite him to be our salvation, we can live with hope knowing that no matter what happens in the here and now, it is a vapor. And we will be with Jesus for eternity in freedom. When the hurt comes, what are you going to do with your focus? What are you going to prioritize? What are you going to fixate on? Because pain wants to lie to you that it will never end. But we know better. We know the truth that Jesus has won the day. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly, he is my rock. Now, who grew up in church? Not everyone did. Who remembers the wonderful children's church song? A wise man built his house upon the rock. Okay, sing along. A wise man built his house upon the rock. A wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came a-tumbling down. Well, the rains came down, and the floods went up. The rains came down, and the floods went up. The rains came down, and the floods went up. But the house on the rock stood firm. The song goes on to say that the foolish man built his house on the sand. And if your Sunday school teacher was as cool as mine was, the house went splat. Whose went splat? It's a much better sound. It's a beautiful rendition. You guys just all sang Jesus' parable in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Well done. Regardless of what storms come our way, the life that is built on the rock is going to stand secure and firm. Notice that in that parable, Jesus doesn't say that, like, as soon as you're on the rock, the storms can't touch you. It's that once you're on the rock, you're going to be secure. You're going to be certain in your foundation of what your life is set upon. What's your life set upon? I mean, like, honestly, what do your decisions hinge on? What does kind of everything surround? And I want you to hear me. There's, like, absolutely zero judgment in that. This is why. Because the house on the sand is really, really appealing. Some of you have ocean view property. I know jealousy is a sin, um, but I'm super jealous. Jesus can work on me later. 
some of you like actually can walk out to the beach. That'd be amazing. The house on the sand is really, really appealing. And I'm not a contractor, so I could be totally wrong, but it just seems like it would be easier to build than having to chisel down into rock, right? I mean, that is really appealing. It's beautiful view and less work. Sign me up. Until the storms come. And friends, in the sunny times, in the good times, it can be awfully appealing to build our house on the sand. It can be awfully appealing to neglect the hard work of the spiritual disciplines that build our foundation into stone. It can be awfully appealing to gloss over prayer. It can be awfully appealing to come back and read our Bible later. It can be awfully appealing to go to the real beach instead of church. Right? It can be awfully appealing to build our foundation on sand. But the storms are going to come. It's just a matter of when. And the house on the rock is firm. The house on the sand goes splat. Where is your foundation? I get completely caught up in that trap too. Please don't hear judgment. Please hear God's grace in this. Because listen, the storm's going to come. And here's what I know about my good God is that when I've neglected to put my foundation deep in the rock and the storm comes, he doesn't stand back and be like, well, Lisa, how important was that Netflix episode now? He doesn't do that. He doesn't look at me and fold his arms and be like, well, you made your bed. Go sleep in it. I was speaking to you. I was prompting this. You should have known better. You should have listened. No, listen to Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 40, verses 1 and 2. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of my slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet upon a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. Friends, all of the things that God asks us to do are for our good in the long run. Because he knows when the storm is coming. And when he prompts us to do the hard work of spiritual disciplines, to lay a foundation on the rock, he's not trying to lose or make us lose our fun, to take up all of our time, to be this taskmaster. No, he knows that the storms are coming. He's asking us to do that, which is going to protect us in the long run. But when we are frail and broken human beings and disobedient children like we all are, he is still faithful to pick us up out of our mud and put us back on the solid rock of him. Still in the storm, but out of the mud and mire. 
back where we can stand in certainty and strength. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. I homeschool our kids, um, and right now we are talking about the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and this like war that goes back and forth and back and forth, and this person rises up and takes over all these people, and then they're angry, and they rise up and take over all these, right? And in the span of three pages for each significant leader in those two nations' history, it can seem like that goes pretty quick, right? Like, oh, in the span of a year, he conquered an entire nation. And that's not really the way that it works, because all of these nations were fortress cities. If you don't know what a fortress city is, it's a massive box wall that everything happens within. And to conquer a fortress city meant an incredible amount of strategy and time and death and patience. Conquering a fortress city was really difficult. This is the timeline that David would have been living in. You, God, are my fortress my fortress city. Friends, there's a real war that's being waged for you. You have a very, very real God who loves you, who is fighting for you. He is fighting for your good, for your life, because eternity is on the line. But you have a very, very real enemy who is also fighting for you, Except that his goal is not for your good. His goal is for your destruction. There's a very, very real war being waged for you. Stay in the fortress city. Stay there. But if you're like me, I start getting really confident in my independence, in my capability, in my wisdom, and I can just think, you know what? I can take this on. Like, I'm doing really good right now. I'm feeling strong. And I can leave the safety of the fortress and venture into the fray, unguarded, in the midst of this battle that I actually don't need to fight. Because we have a God who promised to fight for us. And what happens when I venture out into the midst of the fray is I often end up guessing the wrong enemy. And now in the midst of this moment where I have a very, very real enemy who's out to destroy me and he decides, you know what, how I'm going to do that is I'm just going to put a wedge in between her marriage what I'm going to do. I can start guessing the wrong enemy, and now all of a sudden my enemy is Lucas. And I can start fighting because I'm not protected in my fortress city. And I can start harming the people that God loves. I can start thinking, 
that my enemy is that horrible boss or the really annoying neighbor. And I can get it wrong. I can mistake the enemy. I can see the war where it actually isn't happening. And when I venture out of my fortress city of protection, I often end up hurting people. And that's why I love how God in his wisdom puts everything in here for us. Like this beautiful nugget in Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, other people that are broken and frail and are going to make mistakes, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Who's the real enemy? It's not the person beside you. The real enemy is the fact that you are caught in a spiritual war, and that's not going to be over until the end of the age. And spoiler alert, Jesus wins, so we're good. But in the meantime, like, we are caught in this very, very real war. But God wants to be our fortress. He wants to be our protection on every side. And the way that I am going to have victory in this life is not by venturing into the fray. The way that I'm going to have victory in this life is by surrendering my will to God. The way that I am going to have victory in this life is asking him to hedge me in on every side. So as I walk through this broken world and I see things that inevitably I shouldn't see, because they're everywhere. And I hear things that I should not hear because it's everywhere. That I am hemmed in on every side. And I am praying a filter over my eyes and my ears and my mouth. That as I walk through this life and I'm tempted to take on a battle. That I would say, God, would you make me slow to anger? And quick to love, slow to speak, and quick to listen like you. Would you make me merciful and compassionate? Would you keep me in the fortress so I don't mistake the real war for the wrong enemy? We have a God who has promised to be our fortress, our way out, our protection. When we surrender, when we bow our knee and ask him to fight for us, He is our rock and refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Verse 8. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. I love all these declarations. This is my absolute favorite, though. God is our refuge. But we don't really, again, we don't really understand it unless we dig into history. There were six cities of refuge that were surrounded throughout the nation of Israel. Each one was strategically placed so that no matter where you were in that entire nation, you could make it to a city of refuge in under a day's journey. When those cities of refuge were established, Israel was under the old law, which meant that any death was punishable by death. And so to protect people that were wrongly accused or that accidentally caused the death of another, God established these cities of refuge. And this is what would happen. 
If you accidentally caused the death of another or someone wound up murdered and just everybody's going to pin it on you, what you would do was make it to the city of refuge. And the moment you crossed through those gates, you were safe to go on trial. You are protected from whoever was going to avenge that person until all of the facts could be laid out, until the wisdom of the gathered assembly could decide what had truly happened and sentencing could occur. You were safe in that city of refuge. I don't know about you, but when I am attacked, the last thing I want to do is run. More I want to turn around Maybe not to the person attacking me, but to whoever will listen and plead my case. Or when I'm wrongly accused of something. Or when, like, I'm guilty, but I didn't intend for it to happen that way. Right? Those are such frustrating times of life where we just don't want to, like, hide in the city of refuge. I want people on my side. I'm the only one. No one else is nodding. Everyone's scared to nod. I don't, like, I don't. I don't be like, okay, God, you do it. You, you bring truth to light. You cause reconciliation. Search me. Forgive me of the sin that is mine from this. Like, I don't want to do that. Because I really like control. And doing that actually means that I get to take on the role of God in this circumstance. Where now I get to pass judgment. I get to dictate how the relationships move forward. I get to decide who is innocent and guilty. I get to be God. But I am not very good at being God. Are you? And here's the beautiful thing about the city of refuge. Is that we have to run to it, stay put, or all protection is off. While God does his work. While God reconciles relationships. While God searches through the evidence of where fault lies and does not lie, while God passes sentencing, while God does what he's really, really good at. When I'm attacked, when I feel accused, the last thing I want to do is turn and run. But when I go into the city of refuge, that's where I have to say, okay, God, just like David's going to pray in another psalm, would you search me and know me? Would you uncover any wicked way in me? Would you forgive? Would you restore? Would you redeem? Would you do what only you can? And while I'm here in this city of refuge, protect my heart and mind. Guard me so I can walk out your mercy and love to those around me. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him.
truly, he's my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tattering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God, for he is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. I don't know what hurt you carried in here today, but since we're broken, frail human beings living beside broken and frail human beings in a broken world, I'm guessing there's some. Can I remind you once again of these declarations? Because they're not just David's. They're ours too. And God in his mercy allowed them to be in here because I feel all of those feelings David felt. I feel all of the anger and the indignation and the sorrow and the grief and the frustration and the sadness. It's called being human. And so God, in his great mercy to us, allowed them to be in here, not so we would wallow, but so we would have declarations like that that would lift our head can I remind you that no matter what you face, God is your salvation. He is victorious. This life is a mist. It's but a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. But regardless of what happens today, this is not all there is. There is an eternity at stake because Jesus, on that cross, exchanged our brokenness for his wholeness. He exchanged our sin and imperfection for his perfection. He exchanged our death for his life. And that same God that would do that loves you so much. He's fighting for you, and he longs to have a relationship with you. He is our salvation if we will invite him to be. We're going to come back to that in a moment. When the storms of life come, and they will, Jesus is our rock. He is our immovable center. That no matter what storms come up, and I'm saying this intentionally because there are kind of three different things here, right? The storms of life just come. You lost your job, likely just a storm of life. The car broke down, storm of life. He is our unmovable center. He is the firm foundation that we stand upon so that we can't be knocked over when those storms of life come and they will. But we also acknowledge his graciousness towards us that when we falter, he is still faithful. And when we're amid the battle, we remember who the real enemy is. We stay safe in the fortress. We allow Jesus to 
protect our hearts and minds, and we petition him to fight for us. When we're attacked and accused, we run to the refuge. We run to the one that is good at being God because he is God. We allow him to search us. We allow him to protect. We allow him to bring truth to light. And I open by saying that we don't know the circumstance of how David wrote this psalm or why, and we don't, know, we don't need to. Because no matter what your hurt is caused by, God is still your salvation, your rock, your fortress, and your refuge. And he will never fail us. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you are with us in the middle of this life. God, we understand that hurt comes. But we understand that you are our hope. And because you allowed David to have prominence in this book, that God, you want to hear our hurt. You're not scared by us coming to you as we would a father or a best friend and saying, this is what hurts right now. But in the midst of all of that, you lift our head with such tenderness. You beckon us to see the greater story. You beckon us to remember that, yes, in this world we will have trouble, but to take heart for you have overcome the world. And we can stand with certainty on who you are. I said we would come back to the piece about salvation. And just with your head still bowed, this morning, if there are people here that would say, you know what? I haven't asked Jesus to exchange his death for life, my death for his life. I don't have a foundation, but I want to. I want that relationship with God that would allow me to have the hope that no matter what happens here and now, there is an eternal life waiting. God, I understand what you say in your word. That I am broken and human. And that sin causes me separation from you. And that's why this cross is so important. You exchanged my death for your life. And so this morning, in this here and now, would you be my savior? Would you forgive me and birth new life within me? Thank you for that exchange. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
Well, we're going to close our service a little bit differently today, and I'm going to ask if Pastor Marcus would join us up here. And as he's coming, I've also asked if our, our deacons and our elders could come at this time as well. And I've also invited um, Pastor Marcus is a PK. And so Pastor Len and Leanne, why don't you come as well? We'd like you to be a part of this moment and um, in, in commissioning and praying. And as I was kind of thinking and praying about this, this, this word just, this has been a word that I've clung to, and it's just kind of part of my journey um, from, from the get-go. And I just want to speak it over you, and I want to speak it over us as a community of faith as well. It's out of 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. And it says this, and this is for all of us. Let no one despise you for your youth, because you are a young man, and I'm jealous. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And I'm sure you've had moments and experiences like that, but we today want to reaffirm that moment as elders and overseers. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. And we believe that today. And uh, we went through a process and the reason we can kind of come up here and confidently lay hands on you and commission you is because we have recognized the call of God in your life. We have recognized the call of God for this particular place and season of life and this particular partnership in ministry. And so we want to just acknowledge that and we're going to pray over you and we're going to let you say a few words and then we're going to get everybody going. But if we could just gather, so if you could step forward. Why don't we stand together, friends? And, and I want to say, I do want to say, this, this word is for all of us. You see, you see a young man before you. But God's calling and his commissioning has nothing to do with age, and it has everything to do with his unique calling. That's the marker, nothing else. And so we stand together in your presence, Lord God, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for this life and for this journey and for this season. Lord, we lay hands on Marcus now in your presence, empowered with your spirit, and we affirm the calling that you've placed on his life to be a shepherd and a pastor to your church, to be a leader, to be one who raises the flag of Jesus in community, Lord God, we thank you for the gifts that you have given him. Would you stir them up in Jesus' name? Holy Spirit, would you stir them up in Jesus' name? We pray, Lord God, for a fresh anointing. A fresh anointing, Lord. That you would fill him, Lord, afresh and anew for this season and the seasons to come. And that, Lord, he would be continually renewed and continually filled for the plans and the purposes that you have called him to put his hands to and his feet to. 
Lord, would you put words in his mouth of blessing? Would you put the words of blessing into his mouth to speak over a generation, to speak, Lord God, over those that he comes in contact with, those both that believe and those that are exploring that faith? Would you put the blessing in his mouth? In Jesus' name. And so, Lord God, we stand together, we affirm this calling, and we thank you for the season set before us as we all, all of us, partner together in the mission of the gospel of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.